Hi there. Uh, well, sorry in advance for this episode coming out late, but I just got through and am still going through a, well, a catastrophic event. If you have been paying attention to the news, you may know that, uh, well, Texas, the entirety of Texas has been fucked by a major uh, winter storm. And uh, I was affected by it. Emily was affected by it. And pretty much uh, a lot of people were affected by it. Uh, Some worse than others. Um, I mean, shit, there's fucking frozen homeless people in the streets that I had been reading about over the past week. It's just it's disgusting, but that's a subject I'm going to get into in the next episode because I already had this episode recorded, so I, I just want to preempt with this. Um, you may or may not know that I live in Austin, Texas, and uh, I recorded this episode on Sunday afternoon, uh, February, what was it, 14th or something like that? I don't, I don't remember which day, but it, it was a Sunday and that night was the last night Emily and I had electricity because when we woke up early Monday morning, we were very, 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 very cold. I, I imagine it got down to probably single digits in our apartment uh, simply because we have no building nor tree cover. We're a top floor. Uh, we're a top floor. So we got nothing but wind. Uh, and the only thing really protecting us from it was a very thin piece of plastic. And um, our electricity was off. And it never came back on. And we had heard that uh, Texas Energy was going to do rolling blackouts, meaning that one section of the city would have no electricity for 40 to 50 minutes, but then it would come back on. And then the next section over would go without electricity for an hour or so. But pretty soon, uh, very fucking soon, we found out that the rollout of uh, rolling blackouts never fucking happened. What happened was... Entire swaths of cities, and I don't even know what the fuck happened to rural areas, but for Austin, entire blocks of city lost power, except for downtown business buildings or the very, very rich parts of Austin. And I'm not including like Round Rock, Pflugerville, or anything like that. I'm talking like Austin, Austin. Um... The very wealthy and historically white, nice neighborhoods and downtown business areas never lost power. Not because there's necessarily a hospital right where that was or anything like that. Um, and there's just reasons I'll get to in the next episode. But I uh, just want to wrap this up by saying uh, Emily and I are now essentially homeless. Now, we were very, very fortunate enough to get out of our apartment 
and into a place that did have electricity and shelter for what turned into a an entire week, uh, or at least uh, basically uh, Sunday night till right now is Friday afternoon, and I understand that there are still places with no electricity and, uh, you know, throughout the week, no water. Um, but we lost our apartment. We found out uh, a few days ago that pipes had burst. Our downstairs neighbor's apartment, um, the ceiling, thankfully not the entire floor, but the ceiling, the dry part, the drywall part, and the drywall of the walls fucking collapsed. His floor got flooded. It's an old man who lives down there. He fucking lost his place. And apparently our place flooded as well due to burst pipes. And we just learned that, uh, well, from our landlord, oh, it looks like the fucking water heater had been installed backwards. Uh, the list goes on. But we lost our place. Um... We lost it, and uh, so tomorrow we're going to go see, hopefully there's stuff, uh, we're going to salvage things. I'm really praying that um, the stuff I really want to salvage and she really wants to salvage is salvageable, um, and then uh, we'll be uh, staying with uh, family uh, in a nearby city. So I just wanted to let you know, that's why this episode is going a little, coming out later. And I intend, fully intend, on keeping this podcast going. And uh, I, at this point, I don't know that I can guarantee there will be an episode every single week, but uh, I, I'm sure as hell going to try to get one out every week, um, because I like doing this. And uh, I don't know... <laughs> I don't know if this is greedy of me to ask or whatever, but if you've thought about becoming a patron to help support the show, now might be a good time to do so if you're able to, if you're safe. Um, if you want to, go to patreon.com slash that thing with James. Uh, here's the episode. I, I enjoyed recording this episode, and it's, I think it's a fucking great topic. Here it is. In heaven, everything is fine. In heaven, everything is fine. In heaven, everything is fine. You've got your good things, and I've got mine. In heaven, Everything is fine in heaven. Everything is fine in heaven. Everything is fine. You got your good thing, and I got mine in heaven. Everything is fine in heaven. 
Everything is fine in heaven. Everything is fine. You've got your good thing, and I've got my. Welcome back to That Thing with James J. Asher II. I'm your host, Hyman. Hyman Burke. Hyman Burke Meister III. Hyman Burke Meister III von Tief. Hyman, Hyman Burke Meister III von Tief. Joseph Heller. Welcome. Today's been quite a week. Ah, what today? Today, today, today. I usually record these on Sunday and then release the episode the following Friday. So today is Sunday, February 14th, Valentine's Day, 2021. It is currently 2.25 p.m. Central Time Zone, United States of America, Austin, Texas. And let me tell you, it's a little bit chilly today. The low is supposed to be 11 today, and a projection of another low of 11 degrees Fahrenheit tomorrow. And if you hear any kind of humming in the background, that is one of these space heaters that I am not going to turn off. And if you hear a crinkling in the background, that is the plastic I put up on all the windows, because this is a very old drafty apartment with zero, literally, like literally, literally, zero insulation. And it's drafty and old, and the landlord who owns this fucking heap doesn't keep up with these apartments. No, you know, he will raise the rent, but fix nothing. Nothing improves, just the rent goes up. And the quality of the apartment continues to crumble, to disintegrate, to just vanish like a puff of dust in the air, rotting, bowing under the weight of it, uh, under its own weight, the rotten, moldy bones of this building built in 1932, bowing under its own weight, becoming more and more depreciated every week. So, it's cold. And when it's cold outside, it's cold in here. And when it's hot outside, it's hot in here. Uh, So, I've got stuff on. I'm wearing my onesie for the viewers. I am wearing my, my, what is this, velour. I'm wearing a thick velour onesie, multiple layers, two socks, one cotton pair and one wool pair of socks. I'm wearing fingerless gloves like a Dickensian character. I've had these fingerless gloves for probably a decade now. Holy shit. And I remember one time in grad school, I was at the bar and I, you know, it was like 5 p.m. So I was pretty well wasted by that point. And I was drinking with one of my professors who uh, also drank a lot and was pretty well wasted by that point. And I was sitting out in the back 
garden, beer garden area. And um, let these sirens pass. I don't know if you can hear that. Let me take a drink of water. <laughs> See if you can hear the sirens. Yeah, I was sitting out back in this uh, garden, beer garden area at the bar. Stonewall Tavern in Stillwater, Oklahoma. And uh, another one of my professors comes up. I, I never saw her there. And she just like appeared out of nowhere. And uh, she commented on my gloves and said they were very Dickensian. And I said, thank you. Who's Dickensie? Now, she gave me a look like I was a fucking dumbass because I, I was. Uh, she gave me a look like I was a dumbass and then just, you know, changed the topic uh, gracefully. And then maybe years later, I was thinking back on that event, on that comment, when I was wearing these fingerless gloves. And it occurred to me, oh, Dickensie, Dickens, Dickensian, like Charles Dickens, like these are gloves of like a fucking bum character in a Charles Dickens novel would wear. And I guess I kind of am a bum character in a Charles Dickens novel. And that's, that's what gives me so much charm and character. I'm a 18th century <laughs> London uh, ash and soot sodden bum talking to you through the internet in future Dickensian times. Uh, let's see. Oh, and I just remembered the other professor that I was there drinking with who was as drunk as me at that point. Probably more drunk. He, he, he drank a lot. God rest his soul. He quit drinking before he died. He died of MRSA. Like he got the flu or something, had to go to the hospital, contracted MRSA, and it started eating his lower spine, and then he fucking died. God rest his soul. Uh, Matt, you were my mentor. I love you, man. Peace. Uh, but I remember when my other professor <laughs> said Dickensian, and I, I just was like, who's Dickensian? I looked over at the other professor, and he just shrugged. He didn't know who the fuck Dickensie was either. But it was Charles Dickens. Speaking of books, I've finally gotten back into reading. I've been trying to read some other stuff, and it's just I couldn't really get into anything. And then I, over the past few weeks, I've just been thinking about Apocalypse Now. I just, I think it's time to watch that movie again. Um, and thinking about that made me think of the novella that the movie is based on. You probably know this. If you don't know it, the film, the, the oh, fuck, what's his name? Francis Ford Coppola film, Apocalypse Now, which is like my favorite movie, is an adaptation of a book that was originally published in 1899 called Heart of Darkness, written by... Uh, a Polish man named Joseph Conrad, written in English, published in English, and English was Joseph Conrad's fourth language, uh, if I'm right. I'm pretty sure it was his fourth language. Uh, for viewers, I'm, I'm holding up a copy, Heart of Darkness. It's 
pretty short with this one. It's like 90 pages. I guess on this, it's like 100, 104 pages. So it's pretty short. I'm almost halfway through it now. And I first read it back like when I was like 15. And I was very intimidated by it. But it is regarded as one of the greatest works ever written in the English language. And um, while I was so very intimidated by it back when I was 15 or 14, whichever, when I first read it, um, I got it. And I'm reading through it now. And it's a lot more accessible to me now because I'm just not so intimidated by the idea of it. You know, when something is regarded with such high regards, it puts it up on a pedestal and you kind of psych yourself out. You think, well, fuck, am I even going to be able to get this? This is high art. I don't know if I'm smart enough for this. Uh, not to mention the, the copy that I read originally, uh, the print was very small, which is not uncommon for like, you know, uh, modern prints of really old stuff, you know, uh, what is it? What is it? Royalty free stuff. What does this say? Public domain to public domain books. It's not uncommon to find these things just printed and formatted in a, a fucked up way. That's hard to read inaccessible in that regard. Uh, so the first copy of this book I read was like that. It was very small print and just completely riddled with footnotes. And while I read through it, the thing with footnotes for me is if there are footnotes on the page, I have to read them. N not, uh, let me rephrase that. I feel uh, an insatiable urge. I feel compelled to read the footnotes as I go along. And I've heard before, like, if you're reading something that has footnotes, just read it through without reading the footnotes, and then go back and read it and then stop to read the footnotes. But frankly, that just seems like a lot of fucking work. I, you know, it's work to get through a thing already. Why would I want to go back a fucking second time to read the footnotes and then get some context for the flow that I just read. So there's that. Plus, it's just sort of like some, I guess, neurotic uh, drive for me. Like, if there's footnotes there, I got to stop and read them. Like, it'll, you know, you, I'll finish the sentence. I'm going with the flow. And then a paragraph or, or in the middle of the paragraph, there'll be parentheses two. And then at the bottom, there's the footnote numbers, the second footnote. And it's right there. So it's like the the prompt for the footnote already fucked up my flow, you know? And, uh, and it's right there at the bottom of the page. And now I'm curious, what the fuck does this footnote mean? Like, what's this about? And then I go down there and I read what the footnote says. And then it, you know, adds some kind of fucking context to the lines that I had just read. But more often, a lot of times, it's like, okay, cool, that's interesting, but it doesn't really fucking add anything to this. It's like, yeah, maybe it adds some context for, you know, historical context, which is cool. Like, I, I guess it's cool in a very academic sort of sense, but then, you know, 
a lot of time, if I'm just reading something uh, just for entertainment, not for intellectual pursuits, but just to read, uh, it doesn't add anything. Like, okay, okay, so this is about a fucking tombstone that people in, in London used to visit back in 1853. All right, cool. I just liked the sound of the word. The sound of the word sounded fine. And, you know, I, I got the idea that the guy's talking about a fucking headstone. You know, he's talking about something dark. Throw in, you know, some reference. Whatever. Uh, so this doesn't have footnotes. So I'm not having that problem. Now, there's another book that incorporates footnotes, but it's not like added intellectual meat. I'm talking about a book called... Uh, House of Leaves, written by Zuendowski, something like that. Let me look this guy's name up. It's a great book. It's a horror, psychological horror novel, and it is, there's nothing else like it. House of Leaves, uh, written by, close, Mark Z. Danieluski. And this guy, Mark Z. Danieluski, is the is the sibling, is the brother of the musical artist Poe. You may be familiar if you're a older millennial or Gen X or just like a, a cool Zoomer or something, then you'll know who Poe is. And of course, Poe got her stage name from the, one of the greatest writers ever, Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, Poe, she wrote that song, uh, oh, I want to, I want to, Johnny, Angry Johnny, not to be confused with Angry whatever from Aphex Twin, Aphex Twin, Angry, Angry Birds, uh, wait, 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 Rubber Johnny. Oh, no, no, no. I'm thinking Rubber Johnny. If you really want to get fucking freaked out and disturbed, watch the music video for Rubber Johnny by Aphex Twin. Oh, man, that's a fucked up video. Uh, let's see here. Angry Johnny by Poe. Uh, originally released in 1995. Johnny, Angry Johnny. This is Jezebel in hell. I want to kill you. I want to blow you away. I want to kill you. I want to blow you away. I can do it to you gently. I can do it to you with an animal's grace. I can do it to you with precision. I can do it to you. I I, do it to you. I can do it to you gently. I can do it with an animal's grace. I can do it with precision. I can do it with gourmet taste. But either way, either way, either way, I want to kill you. I want to blow you away. I can do it to your mind. I can do it to your face. I can do it with integrity. I can do it with disgrace. But either way, either way, I want to kill you. I want to blow you away. Johnny, angry Johnny, this is Jezebel in hell. Johnny, angry Johnny, this is Jezebel in hell. 
I'm just going to read the whole fucking lyrics because, well, it's content. It's filler, baby. And uh, I haven't heard this song in a long time. I didn't even know all the words. I, I didn't know it was Jezebel in hell. I had no idea what it Johnny, angry Johnny, this is blah, blah, blah. I, I had no idea. I just heard phonetics that didn't form into a single, any kind of word. I can do it in a church. I can do it any time or place. I can do it like an angel to quiet down your rage. But either way, either, oh, either way, I want to kill you. I want to blow you away. I can do it in the water. I can do it on dry land. I can do it with instruments. I can do it with my own bare hands. But either way, either way, you know where it stands. I want to kill you. I want to blow you away, Johnny. Angry Johnny, this is Jezebel in hell. Johnny, oh my Johnny, where did your pleasure go where the pain came through you, or when the pain came through you? Where did your happiness go? What was that? Where did your happiness go? This force is running you around now, getting you down now. Where is your pleasure now, Johnny? Where has your pleasure gone now? Johnny, angry Johnny, this is Jezebel in hell. Johnny, angry Johnny, this is Jezebel in hell. Johnny, I want to blow you. Oh, Johnny, away. Johnny, I want to blow you away. Johnny, everybody really doesn't feel okay. Johnny. Songwriters. Felix Cavalier, Ralph James Rice, and ooh, Annie Decatur Danieluski, who is uh, Mike M- Mark Z Danieluski's sister. Yes, so they are siblings, and Mark Z Danieluski wrote this book called House of Leaves, and uh, it is a fucking trip, uh, but it incorporates. Like, you can read it without the footnotes, but uh, you should definitely read it with the footnotes. Because that's another thing where people say, like, read it the first time through without the footnotes, and then read read it again and stop to read the footnotes. Fuck that. That's a long book anyway. I just read it through with the footnotes the first time. And that didn't detract from it. As a matter of fact, it just adds layer upon layer upon layer of more fucking psychotic information. The book breaks down even just the formatting on the page. Like, you'll have full pages that are like nothing but footnotes. And uh, and it just plays with more footnotes and more footnotes. And it plays with a lot of just like the way... Uh, academic literature is written it's sort of um uh, a critique on, on that on on academic papers because the guy who wrote it daniel Lewski, he is an academic um and the way the book is written makes fun of that kind of stuff it's sort of a satire in that way and uh, but it's also deeply fucking disturbing and it messes with you like you the reader 
feel like you're getting sucked into something. It's, it's, uh, you just got to read the book. It's amazing. And, uh, the main character, one of the narrators, just like as the narrator's mental condition, uh, continues to deteriorate. So too does the structure of print on each page. Like there's one part where, I believe the character's like running down some stairs and it's like the stairs are endless and the words are written, you know, it's not like block print on everything. It'll be like a word, you know, most of the page is blank. And then each word, like starting from the top left will be printed. And it's like uh, steps on stairs, the way each word is printed, like, to the right and down a bit, to the right and down a bit, to the right and down a bit. And then it just gets even more whacked out. Um, and uh, it, it's pretty fucking cool. And honestly, those are my favorite kinds of horror movies. I'm not a fan of stuff that I call gore porn. You know, just like, just really just gory, cheap jump scares it's just it's cheap i don't like that kind of shit i want my horror movies to you know make me feel fucked up you know like scared inside my own head i like horror movies that are you know psychological thrillers just a, a descent into madness and that's what the book house of leaves is and that's what the film um, Apocalypse Now is, or or my favorite horror movie, The Shining, is about a descent into madness, plus the very real possibility that there may be supernatural shit going on that we don't really know about. Maybe kids can see it. Maybe the mad can see it, but, you know, normies can't really see it but maybe it's really influencing everything uh and also the descent into madness and everything is at the heart of heart of darkness by joseph conrad and the book is just it's beautiful i mean there's a lot of uh, there's racist language in it for sure and before i even started rereading it this is my second time ever reading it I was searching, I was like, is Heart of Darkness racist? Uh, because it, it takes place in the 1800s, and it, it is about the uh, colonization or the attempt to colonize uh, Congo, uh, France, um, the Dutch, the English going into the Congo. These are uh, people who are hunting and trading ivory off the Congo uh, on the on the river. All right, and uh, there's racist language in it. And from what I've read, that's a lot of like a uh, academic discussion over the years of trying to say like. Is the book in like uh, hands down the book's fucking brilliant, but what's up with the racist language in it? And it's not made in such a way where it's like it's not really promoting 
racism or that kind of thing. Um, kind of where my mind was going with it and where it seems like a lot of academics who discuss this stuff have kind of settled on is more that it's basically kind of a critique of uh white Europeans going in to another country and, and claiming these other people are savages, you know, when they're really not fuck the white men are the savages for going in and destroying fucking everything, the white devil. Um, so the book I feel is, I mean, just poetically fucking brilliant. And it's just, it's amazing. And it's amazing that this is like the guy's fourth language. And it's one of the, you know, most revered books written in English language ever. And uh, it basically is a huge critique of uh, imperialism, of conquest, of capital. Um, and uh, uh, I feel a critique of humans well, some, not all, but especially, say, in this book, Europeans, um, imperialistic, capitalistic drive to conquer nature itself. The futile drive for some humans to make nature bend to its will. And that's futile because humans are part of nature and nature is a lot bigger than us. And maybe we can mow everything fucking down, but then nature comes back. It's say like climate change. It'll burn you alive. You can't force the weather to change. You can try. And surely you can try to change something. Surely you can cause some kind of change, but there are consequences. There are always consequences. And, well, this book is about, say, consequences. What happens to a person as they try to dominate nature? What happens to a person when they try to dominate other people? So on and so forth. And there are consequences, and it gets pretty dark. Let's see, where was this? Where's this line I really liked? There's a couple different narrators. The bulk of this story is told by a narrator within a narrator. And uh, let's see here. Blah, blah. I'm looking for this one line that I really liked. You understand the idea, there is an idea, something, something. Uh, one of the main characters was just talking about why Europeans were going into the Congo. And essentially, he said they were trying to create their own god, just as there are other tribes around the world in what we consider uh, primitive living situations, we being like, say, an Englishman in the 1800s. 
uh, what we may consider primitive. They have idols, they have their gods, their pagan gods that they worship to. So too do we have our gods, the gods of imperialism, the gods of capital. And we will try to go in and establish those gods for what? For an idea, an idea, something to prop up and worship. I, I really like it. Not sure where I was going with that, but uh, I do want to get into the let's let's stick with this theme of uh, going into diving into madness. I saw a new movie a couple nights ago for the first time. I saw Eraserhead. Hold on, let me take a short break. I'll be right back. <clears throat> Before I get any further into uh, my freeform review of Eraserhead, I, I did find the section I wanted to share from the beginning, near beginning of Heart of Darkness. And this is the character Marlowe speaking. He's the second narrator, but the most prominent. He's the one telling the real story here. Uh... He's, re he's recounting this his story to an unnamed primary narrator, but the bulk is told from the secondary narrator, Marlowe. And mind, when he talks about savagery here, he's talking about the savagery of imperialism, really. The savagery of capital, the pursuit, the vampiricism, the taking and taking and taking without a second thought of who they're taking from, why they're taking, and what effect it has. So, I'm just going to jump in here. They were men enough to face the darkness, and perhaps he was cheered by keeping his eye on a chance of promotion to reflect. This is before he really gets into his story. He's just sort of recounting uh, empires of the past and the people who acted out agents of empire. And perhaps they were cheered by keeping his eye on a chance of promotion to the fleet at the Ravenna by and by. And if he had good friends in Rome and survived the awful climate. Or think of a decent young citizen in a toga, perhaps too much dice, you know, coming out here in the train of some prefect or tax gatherer or trader even to mend his fortunes, land in a swamp, march through the woods, and in some inland post feel the savagery, the utter savagery had closed round him. All that mysterious life of the wilderness that stirs in the forest, in the jungles, in the hearts of wild men. There's no initiation either into such mysteries. He has to live in the midst of the incomprehensible, which is also detestable. And it has a fascination, too, that goes to work upon him. The fascination of the abomination. You know, imagine the growing regrets, the longing to escape, the powerless disgust, the surrender, the hate. He paused. 
Mind, he began again, lifting one arm from the elbow, the palm of the hand outwards, so that, with his legs folded before him, he had the pose of a Buddha preaching in European clothes and without a lotus flower. Mind, none of us would feel exactly like this. What saves us is efficiency. The devotion to efficiency. But these chaps were not much account, really. They were no colonists. Their administration was merely a squeeze and nothing more, I suspect. They were conquerors, and for that you want only brute force, nothing to boast of when you have it, since your strength is just an accident arising from the weakness of others. They grabbed what they could to they grabbed what they could get for the sake of what was to be got. It was just robbery and violence, aggravated murder on a great scale, and men going at it blind, as is very proper for those who tackle a darkness. The conquest of the earth, which mostly means the taking it away from those who have a different complexion or slightly flatter noses than ourselves, is not a pretty thing when you look into it too much. What redeems it is the idea only, an idea at the back of it, not a sentimental pretense, but an idea, and an unselfish belief in the idea, something you can set up and bow down before, and offer sacrifice to. He broke off. Flames glided in the river, small green flames, red flames, white flames. Who the fuck is yelling in the background? Shut up! I'm reading literature. He broke off. Flames glided in the river. Small green flames, red flames, white flames, pursuing, overtaking, joining, crossing each other, then separately, then separating slowly or hastily. The traffic of the great city went on, and the deepening night upon the sleepless river. We looked on, waiting patiently. There was nothing else to do till the end of the flood. But it was only after a long silence when he said in a hesitating boy voice, I suppose you fellows remember, I... Once did a turn in freshwater sailor for a bit. And that we knew we were fated before the ebb began to run to hear about one of Marlowe's inconclusive experiences. That's all I'm going to read. The idea, something to set up, to bow down to, and to worship. The idea, an idea, an idea. Whose idea? An idea. And that idea is the source, possibly is, that idea could be viewed as a source of the misery and madness you can find in the film Eraserhead. Yes, yes, yes. I love how this is coming together. Eraserhead, it was fucking disturbing and great. I love I love, love, love David Lynch. In case if you couldn't tell that about me by now, I'm the type of person who likes David Lynch. Uh, and this was my first time watching his debut film. Uh, 
eraser head. And I learned just this morning that eraser head was one of uh, Stanley Kubrick's favorite films. Not only that, but it was like the driving influence on Kubrick as he made my favorite horror film, The Shining. He made all the cast and crew watch Eraserhead before they started really producing uh, The Shining film adaptation. And uh, from what I read, just uh, the, the movie Eraserhead was a huge education for Kubrick. The idea of just the noise, constant humming in the background. It sets you on edge. Uh, An education in just setting the camera down in still, long, drawn-out moments where it doesn't move. Or maybe it moves so, so slowly it's nearly imperceptible. When you stop, the audience will look deeper. They'll start looking. What's supposed to happen? Am I missing something here? It draws you in. You start looking closer. You get out your scalpel. Start slicing into the scene and trying to figure out what is happening. Why are we stopped? Is this ever going to end? What is that humming noise? Is something going to jump out at me? Muted colors. Still camera. Long, drawn out dread. Eraserhead taught Kubrick how to communicate dread. And Eraserhead is nothing but fucking dread and dread, and it's funny. The first half, at least, is funny. In in the classic uh, absurd, it's a surrealist. I I don't even know if I could call it absurd. Well, there's absurd elements, but I'd say it's, the baseline is surreal. And the it just it perfectly kind of dissects how i personally when i was watching it it dissects how i feel in quote unquote normal world where you go to a a, a friend or a romantic partner or a stranger's house and you meet their family and you see the way other people live and it's it can be deeply fucking uncomfortable but beyond that I say, uh, I'm sure, who the fuck knows what Lynch was going for? Honestly, I don't think he even fully knows, and that's fine. What he is doing is basically what I describe as like being a stenographer. And I steal that word from this dude I met back when I was in undergrad. Uh, He was a poet. And, uh, and like, I read some of my own shitty fucking poetry that I thought was fire (laughs) at a poetry night at a local cafe. 
and um, I heard this other guy and, you know, I went out back and was smoking cigarettes and just talking to him and stuff. And he, I think in his poem, described himself as God's stenographer, which is uh, just a really great, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's a great way to illustrate or communicate the idea of awareness, you know, like when you meditate, just being aware, becoming clear, translucent, invisible, disintegrating your existence, just being a mirror, reflecting everything going on around you and just watching and recording. And not in your head thinking, this is happening, and this is happening, and this is happening. No, 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 no. Shut it all off. And just sit still and be aware. Just pay attention. It's so simple, yet so fucking hard. In our culture, for many fucking reasons. But just sit and pay attention. Well, what I feel... Lynch does when he makes something is an idea comes to him. I don't even think maybe, maybe he would say something different, but the way it strikes me is that a lot of his ideas, especially the stuff that's really far out where it's just like, what the fuck is this? It's just that an idea comes to him and he's like, okay, uh, this just struck me. So, I'm going to try to translate it as well as I can. And that's it. And also at the very beginning, it starts out in this space. There were a lot of uh, recurring, say, uh, visual and conceptual motifs in uh, Eraserhead that I saw. I'm like, wait a second. That floor is like the floor in the, the other place behind the curtain in Twin Peaks, the, the zigzag black and white floor. And then people like floating in outer space and they're like grotesque. And I'm watching this at the beginning of Racerhead and I'm thinking like, what are these beings supposed to be? Because I've, he, he puts this stuff in other his other works as well. And it's like, what the fuck are these supposed to be? These things in this, in space, in this, this other realm beyond the veil? Like, are these supposed to be gods or other types of beings that our senses, uh, especially our, 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 our conscious, um, culturally uh, flavored, culturally colored um, egos can't really um, perceive or comprehend? Are, are these things beyond our comprehension? What is it? And then it occurred to me, it's like, yeah, don't even try to comprehend it. But that space, what if it's always in space? What's up with this thing with like being in space, being beyond in another realm? And it, it occurred to me while I was watching it, wait, wait, wait. So this isn't, this isn't Lynch consciously doing this to say this, that, or the other. No. This is Lynch communicating as best he can, translating as best he can experiences that he has 
because I know he's really into meditation and really into the imagination. And when you sit, I mean, these things go together, meditation and imagination. And when you sit, you may find yourself going somewhere to some space. If you spend time really paying attention to your imagination, to your inner world, which may also be the outer world, uh, the outer limits, uh, stuff may come to you. Ideas, sounds, images. Where do ideas come from? And maybe it's the space of ideas that he's communicating here. And maybe when he puts the these recurring motifs, especially the things in space, like this other realm or whatever, maybe it's not him putting his ego in there, per se. Uh, it's him translating his personal experience. He's not saying, like, this is something I thought of, and I'm going to put it in my film or in my TV show. No. The way I perceived it was, this is something that I didn't think of. It's something that I'm part of, much as you and I are parts of nature. Therefore, it is futile for us to try to conquer nature. Uh, same goes for inner life, for the realm of thoughts and ideas and just things beyond our human comprehension. We are parts of this space and we don't control it. We don't own it. You are a, in another sense, uh, this is something I've thought of for a long time. What if you, what if I'm a figment of your imagination? Or what if together we are figments of someone else's imagination? You know, sort of simulation theory kind of thing. Uh, whatever it is, I feel like a lot of the stuff, especially the the other realm, outer space stuff, is just Lynch trying to uh, communicate his experience of like, this this occurred to me, and I don't own it. I'm just a part of it. It came to me, and I want to share it with you. And that's it. Now, when it comes down to a lot of the other stuff, I feel like the movie was about, 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 about uh, anything you want it to be, really. What struck me, uh, just because human mind, especially uh, European, American-influenced mind, cannot help but try to find meaning and, and place meaning on something, for better, for worse, or for weirder. And the meaning my mind kept trying to apply was this is kind of, especially the part where the main character, what's his name? Henry, I think it's Henry, goes to his uh, sort of girlfriend's, maybe, maybe not baby mama's parents' house where she's staying and just uh, this idea of like the American dream or the American way, it's just unnatural and disturbing. Like the whole thing was just basically saying, the, the way it hit me was like, uh, here's what is traditional. Here's like what you're supposed to do. And it ain't fucking normal at all. It's very cold. 
It's very unnatural uh, and very fucking disturbing. And uh, it kind of reminded me a bit of, not, not stylistically, but just the idea of taking uh, the mundane, taking stuff that um, people tend to think, well, this is just the way it is. This is how we do things. Looking at that, taking a step back or taking a step inward into it and really looking at it and realizing this is fucking disturbing and bizarre and, again, unnatural. It reminds me of uh, Fellini. Fellini films do that really well, where he will go into, you know, life. Just the way the culture is set up. Take a look at it. Experience it as if you are an alien. And I feel like an alien. I've felt like an alien my entire life. Maybe not necessarily like an extraterrestrial or as Giorgio Tsoukalos would say, extraterrestrial. Not like that, just like a foreigner. I anywhere, anywhere I've lived, I've never felt like I fit in. And no matter how hard I try to fit in or whatever, it just it doesn't work. I just don't. I don't. I don't know what the fucking deal is. Um. But looking at it with foreign eyes, let's say, things are very uh, grotesque and cartoonish and surreal and absurd. And I feel like that's what Eraserhead. That's how it struck me. Uh, plus, um, the guy just sort of dealing with being a single parent and just the insanity of everything. Perhaps, perhaps, perhaps the way tradition, perhaps the way things are, take a naturally occurring thing and make it grotesque and make it difficult to deal with, make it impossible to not go fucking insane uh in through through experiencing there's no way you can experience the way things are without going fucking mad to some degree and uh yeah that's how it hit me um just the muted colors everything was very brutal it was very brutal and industrial film and i empathized with the baby you know when i read about it they say like uh, the deformed baby. I aren't, I mean, we're all aliens in that regard. Babies are fucking aliens, <laughs> like extraterrestrials. Um, and they're just poor and helpless. And I really felt sorry for that baby. I know, uh, some people find that baby grotesque and they're glad it died. Uh, not me. I felt very sorry for that poor thing. And I felt very sorry for it having to have been born. Because none of us asked to be born. And we certainly didn't ask to be born into a very brutal, cold, lonely, surreal, anti-natural world. And uh, so that's cool. And I also think it's cool that it had such a huge impact on Stanley Kubrick 
as he went in to make uh, The Shining. And the woman across the hall, if you've seen, if you've seen Eraserhead, I, I watched it on HBO Max. They had it on, on that streaming application. But uh, the attractive woman who lives across the hall, um, the relationship that Henry has with her and the encounters he has with her influenced um, Kubrick's idea of the like corpse ghost woman in room, what is it, 237? Is it room 237 or is it 257? Two something seven in The Shining in the uh, Overlook Hotel. And, uh, you know, sex as an escape becomes a decaying matter as the world around you decays. It's, uh, I fucking love psychological horrors. <laughs> Probably because I can relate to it. Well, I'm, I'm winding down here. I uh, think I want to go play some video games now. Uh, yeah. Oh, speaking of video games, I just last night downloaded the software necessary for me to stream on Twitch. So this year I'm going to, I, I, I don't have a solid set date. I don't like having solid set dates like that for, for things like that, uh, for creative pursuits per se. But if you give me a deadline, I will meet it for sure. But any, anyway, that's all beside the point. I got software downloaded here on my laptop so I can stream on Twitch. I intend on getting into that like this spring, you know, by the end of the spring, I'll be streaming on Twitch. I don't know how often. Um, I've just got a regular laptop here. It's certainly not a gamer laptop. <laughs> certainly doesn't have enough uh, hard drive space or anything like that. Um, I do have a a console. I've got gaming consoles. So I'll definitely be doing like just chat streaming on Twitch. And once I figure out how to uh, get the game to stream from the console into the OBS program here on my laptop, while also getting myself on the camera and microphone into the same stream, I'll be streaming games too. Once I can figure all this stuff out, ideally, man, I'd love to have a PC again. I um, started life a PC gamer. I was a PC gamer for a long time and then just life happened. Didn't have enough money or space to keep up with a fucking beast of a machine. But whatever the case, I, I'm going to be on Twitch soon. Um, my username right now is Theater of Cruelty. Theater spelt the French way, R-E instead of E-R at the end, R-E of cruelty, based on the type of uh, the theater concept developed by the madman Antonin Artaud, which I should do an episode about him. Interesting guy. Uh, what else? Oh, if you want to help support the show, if you're able to, please, I encourage you to help support the show. You don't even have to donate a whole lot. Uh, but uh, if you're able to and comfortable enough, please, I invite you to become a donor at patreon.com slash that thing with James. You can find multiple subscription levels there. Um, 
and I'm trying to think of stuff to put out that won't take up so much time on my limited time that it'll drive me fucking mad. Uh, exclusive things for donors, exclusive content. So I'm still trying to figure this stuff out two years in. Uh, let's see what else. Mm. Oh, yeah. Become a donor. Patreon.com slash that thing with James. If, if you have any questions for me, if uh, you are in need of any kind of advice you'd like me to give on the show, if you have any stories or subjects you would like me to cover on an episode, send me an email at thatthingwithjames at gmail.com. Oh, before I forget, thank you to my current donors. How rude of me. Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, send questions, suggestions, love letters to that thing with James at gmail.com. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter. My handle is at James J. Asher. Uh, and I also have a subreddit that um, I don't post on a whole lot, but I would love it if you would go on and do some good quality shit posting. Give me some really bad fucking memes. Not distasteful it's not not some like you know eight coon 4chan shit but give me some good shit posts give me some good memes uh submit some like artwork or something at r slash that thing with james and that's all i've got for now thank you for tuning in i love you so much if you haven't read Heart of Darkness, I strongly encourage it. If you haven't seen, um, oh, oh, and if you haven't read House of Leaves, I encourage you to read it. If you haven't heard Angry Johnny by Poe, I encourage you to listen to it. And if you haven't seen Eraserhead or The Shining or Apocalypse Now, I encourage you to do all those things. Watch them, read them, hear them, love them. Much as I love you, Thank you for tuning in. Catch you in the next episode. Mm -hmm. Bye.